if you uh, would open up your copy of the scripture to John 17. If you didn't bring a physical copy with you, I invite you to pull out your phone and find John 17. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 4, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work in your life right now. He has a goal and he is moving with purpose. In the scripture today, in John chapter 17, we're gonna see Jesus pull back the shades for us so we can see a little bit more into some of the work that God is doing in your life and in my life. I I would guess that most of us consistently live unaware of that work. But God is at work, he has a goal, and he's moving with purpose to accomplish his work in you and in me until it's completed on the day of Christ Jesus. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning, am I working with God as he works in me, or am I working against God as he works in me? Let's see some of what Jesus said in John chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 13. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Now, we've jumped into the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his Father. It began back in verse 1 of chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven And prayed. Now, I want you to fire up your imagination this morning. You are one of the disciples, and you are eavesdropping as Jesus is praying to his Father. Uh, Jesus has been teaching uh, in, in the last few chapters. Before that, chapter 12, he predicted his own death, which was a surprise to you as one of his disciples. Then he washed your feet, also a surprise to you. Then he predicted that one of the 12 of you had already agreed to betray him and hand him over, essentially to death, into the hands of the religious leaders. Your leader, Peter, uh, is going to pretend that he doesn't even know Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And now Jesus begins to pray in John chapter 7. 17, and you are listening in. And Jesus has said here in verse 13 that if God answers his prayer, it will result in the full measure of joy for you. I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am. Am in the world. Now, when Jesus says that he has given the disciples 
God's word. That is the message that he has been proclaiming all the way through. So we're we're going through the gospel of John from John chapter 1 all the way through John chapter 17. That is the word, the message from God that Jesus has been teaching about. And not just teaching, but Jesus has been embodying and living out. He says, I've given these followers your word and because of that, they are hated. The world hates them. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil. And now again, imagine, you are one of the disciples uh, and, and you're, you're all discombobulated and Jesus is praying and he's just said that because the message has been given to you, now the world is going to hate you. You might think, hey, hold on, time out. You are leaving to go and be with your father. Why not just take us with you? We believe in you, you are Messiah, you are God's Savior, you have been sent to earth, you are God's Son. We believe all that, so instead of leaving us here to be hated, why don't you just take us with you? But Jesus says, I'm, I'm not doing that. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why did, not Jesus, why did Jesus not answer that, what I am assuming, would have been a logical thing for the disciples. Just take us with you. Why, why didn't Jesus not do that? Because he loves you. Because if he had taken those original disciples with him when he ascended back to the Father, what hope would we have? We would have never known the works and wonders of Christ. We would have never known uh, of the kingdom of God, of his sacrificial death on the cross. We would have never known about his resurrection. It was because God loved future generations that he left them there. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. In Daniel chapter 6, familiar story, even if you didn't grow up in church, uh, a trap has been set uh, for a righteous man named Daniel. Daniel was faithful to God. He prayed multiple times a day. Living in the context of Babylon, from, and the Babylonian leaders, uh, they did not like all of the favor that Daniel received from the king, and so they plotted a trap. The king agreed that if anyone prayed to any god other than the king, then that person was going to be thrown in the lion's den. Uh, the, the king didn't want to hurt Daniel, but he got caught up in his own ego and pride, uh, the same thing that we get caught up in. And so long story short, Daniel prayed to God just as he always done, and he gets thrown into to the lion's den. In the morning, because the king's heart was broken, he ran out to see maybe God had done a work. And in verse 22, uh, Daniel says, from the lion's den, after spending the night there, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of, a lion, of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. What Jesus is saying in his prayer is God, I am not asking you to take the disciples out of the lion's den. I'm just asking that you would shut the mouth of the lion. I'm leaving them here because I love future generations. I love people that are to come. And they need to hear their word, their message. But while they're living in the lion's den, will you protect them? Will you keep them safe? Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
Now, Jesus uses the word world in two ways throughout the Gospel of John. One is to refer to the cosmos, everything, creation, stars, moon, sky, all of that. Towards the end of the Gospel of John especially, he begins to use the word world with a hint of antagonism. Because the world that he means here is the who and the what that refuses to believe that Jesus is Lord. And we are living among the world. It's easy to recognize the world by how it defines really living. So if you went out among your neighbors and your coworkers uh, today and you would say, you know, hey, what is a successful life? How would you define it? The world defines it very specifically. Really living you can see this on the screen. Really living, living is, is having lots of money. Really living is sexual expression. Really living is winning over opponents. Really living is the freedom to own the things that I want. Really living is choosing my own fate. Really living is fulfilling dreams, dream job, dream spouse, dream kids, dream house, dream vacations. But, but Jesus defines really living differently. Throughout the Gospel of John, he uses the phrase eternal life, that he has come to offer eternal life to the world. And when you hear eternal life, don't hear eternity life, meaning long-lasting, everlasting. Hear a type, a kind, a, a, a description of life. In fact, he defines eternal life for us earlier in his prayer. John chapter 17, look in verse 1 with me. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who you have given him. Now this is eternal life. So he's going to define it for us. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is how God defines eternal life. Knowing him, knowing Jesus Christ, who he has sent. That is what God thinks really living is. Now, just ask yourself, what do you think successful living is? The first list, money, possessions, things, expression, freedom, fulfilling dreams, or knowing God and knowing Christ. Now, what we would all love to say is, uh, can I have both? Can I put knowing God and Christ at the top of the list, number one? In a distant second, money, possession, freedom. And ideally, we would order our life like that. Here's the problem about making lists. The bottom half of the list almost always overtakes the top of the list. He says, I've left them here in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, this is good news for us because most of us are living according to the first list and not how Jesus defines really living. But thankfully, he's asked God to sanctify us. Now, remember, you're a disciple eavesdropping in on Jesus' prayer. And when you had heard sanctify, you probably would have immediately thought of the temple there in the middle of Jerusalem. 
was on a hill. It overlooked the whole thing. And in the temple, there were sanctified things and there were sanctified people. There were sanctified furniture. There was a a table in there that had bread uh, that God had specifically prescribed. There was a menorah in there whose candles stayed lit just as God had prescribed it in what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. Uh, Those pieces of furniture, they were special. If you needed a lamp in your house, you couldn't go and take that specific one. That one was set aside. It was only to be used in worship for God. And there were people inside the temple that were sanctified. They were set apart. They were the priests. And the priests, in order to serve in God's house, the temple in Jerusalem, they had to go through all of these these processes, these ceremonies, do all of these rituals in order to be ritually clean before they went in and helped people worship God. So you're one of the disciples and you're thinking that is what it means to be sanctified. It's a piece of furniture in the temple or it's one of the priests. And the disciples were not priests. They were just regular people. They had very earthy jobs. One of them even had an immoral job. He was a tax collector before he began to follow Jesus. These are not religious professionals, but Jesus is using the same word about them that they had always used about priests. And notice that Jesus is praying. He is asking his father to sanctify them. He, he's, he's not speaking to them saying, sanctify yourself. Try really hard to be very dedicated and very holy. This is something that he's asking God to do. This is the work that God is doing in you. He is setting you apart. He is sanctifying you. He is making you holy. What does that look like for us? Those priests and those instruments, they had to go through all these rituals in order to be ritually pure or ceremonially pure but when God purifies us it's it's all the way through it's not just surface it's not just ceremony how is God purifying us first he's purifying our mind Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 finally brothers and sisters whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things. It's purity of heart. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Purity of our words. Ephesians 4 29. Do not let any unwholesome or unclean or impure talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And purity of body. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. Therefore since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. God is sanctifying you and I just as he did those disciples. He's making us pure, but purity is just the first stop on the train of sanctification. The destination is purpose. That's why he prays in the next verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, when a priest went into God's house, the temple, to minister, there were some very specific instructions. They first had to bathe in a certain way. Then they had to wear certain underwear. That's real. You can look it up in the Bible. Uh, They had a robe that they wore. There was a vest that went over that. Even some of them wore a very specific hat. Now you imagine that you are one of those priests. You've gone through all the ceremonies. You've bathed. You've washed your hands. You've made sacrifices. You're wearing your very ornate Uh, uh, uniform, but you're sitting at home on the couch watching Everyone Loves Raymond. 
You're like, you know, hey, everybody does love Raymond. That's a, that's a, that's a good show. But I didn't get all, all dressed up. I didn't go all of these, through all of these things just to sit and do nothing. The priests were sanctified and pure for a purpose. And so Jesus says this to his disciples. Again, regular people, just like you and just like me that have been set apart. I send you into the world just as you, Father, have sent me into the world. Wherever you go tomorrow, you go to work, you run errands, wherever you go, you are not going, you are sent. You are sent as an ambassador of Christ. He has sent you there as salt. He has sent you there as light. He has sent you there to love your neighbor as yourself. He has sent you there to make disciples of all nations. He has sent you there to be a prophet. He has sent you there to be a pastor. See, our holiness should carry a briefcase. I mean, nobody carries briefcase anymore, but you get the picture. Your righteousness should have a gym bag. And your godliness should have a favorite restaurant. You have been sent into the world. But Jesus says, as he referenced earlier, when we are sent into the world, the world is going to hate us. The more he sets us apart, the more the world will set us aside. That's why he prays in verse 20. Look at it with me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that's us today. Jesus is praying for you. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me. Love them even as you have loved me. He, he asks the Father to unify us, to, to make us one. Why? Because we are living in the lion's den. And in the lion's den, we need each other. And so he says, God, will you unite them? And by their unity... The world is going to know that they believe in me. So, so we need to ask ourselves, where am I working against the Father answering the prayer of Jesus to make us one? It's not if you are or if I am. You are and I am working against the Father making us one in some area of our life. It's not if, it's where is that happening. I saw this interesting thing, uh, this thing, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the internet, but uh, on the internet, there are all kinds of interesting things. And Gordon Conwell Seminary, seminary, um, a great seminary, uh, published this thing. We, we put up the little graph thing. You can't read that unless you've been eating a lot of carrots, uh, but uh, I'll summarize it. Uh, for you in the next slide. This is if the world, uh, so all the followers of Jesus around the world that we know of, if, if all of them just were kind of summarized in 100 people. So imagine that you go to church with 100 people. So maybe that's like these uh, two sections right here or uh, so. Uh, and uh, we go to the next slide for me. If you went to church with 100 people, global people, um, Spanish would be the most common language. Uh, 63 uh, of your church family of 100 would live on somewhere between 10 and $100 per day. Now, that includes housing. That's not just walking around money. Um, 
In fact, 18 of your church family, of, of your church family, 18 of them, this is not on the slide, would live on less than $10 a day. So 20% of your church family live on less than $10 per day. Five of them would have malaria. One person in your church family of 100 would have HIV. 26 are under the age of 15, 64. Most of your church family is somewhere between 15 and 64, and 10 of them are over 64 years of old, uh, years, 64 years old. 70 live in moderately corrupt countries. 70% of your church family cannot trust their government in any way. And that doesn't mean like, you know, America. I mean, you know, like for real, you know, couldn't trust, <laughs> can't trust their government. 65 uh, live in urban areas. 35 live in rural areas. 89 People in your church family can read, but 11 can't. Uh, 26 would live in Africa, 24 in Latin America, 23 from Europe, 15 in Asia, 11 from North America. And if you're good at math, you'll notice that's only 99 people. Uh, One of your brothers or sisters in your church family would be from um, Oceania. Is that a thing? Uh, Australia, Indonesia, Polynesia, uh, that part of the world. These are people, this is a summary of people who confess Jesus as Lord around the world. And Jesus has prayed long before you ever confessed him. Jesus has prayed that all of those people would be one. Now think about all of the diversity. And that's just diversity that we're talking about today, let alone diversity that's found uh, inside each of these countries represented economic diversity, educational diversity, e- ethnic diversity. Right? And God is making us all one. Right? Now, I know we all say amen to that. We're like, yeah, we agree. But what would it look like to move from agreeing, I hope that happens, too eager, and I want to make it happen. What if we said, Jesus, we hear your prayer to your Father that we would be one, we would be united. So instead of just being okay with it, we want to be vehicles that you use to make it happen. And a good place for us to start is we say, yes, we want to be one, but here are the conditions in which I'm willing to be Unified. Essentially, I would be one and united with other Christians, but they keep messing it up. They vote wrong. If they voted correctly, then we could be more united. Uh, they speak wrong. They, they look wrong. They, they do this. They do that. The conditions in which we're unified, we always assign to someone else. If they are going to behave according to my expectations, then we're going to have no problems. But what if we said, I'm not just agreeing that we'll all be one. I want to be eager to make it happen. And so I will accept all of the conditions. I will do whatever it is necessary to be united with other people. And why would we do that? Because we live in the lion's den. And Jesus has chosen to not remove us from it, but to protect us within it. And how does he protect us? He gives us each other. We have things to learn from our brothers and sisters in Asia and Africa. We have theology to learn from uh, scholars, from places most of us have never even been. We have sermons to hear from the pastors of Europe and Australia 
and South America and Nigeria. He's making us one. I want to be eager to be a part of that. In verse 19, for them I sanctify myself, Jesus says, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus was pure. He was tempted in every way that you have been tempted, Scripture says. But he resisted temptation. He was sanctified in his purity, but he was also sanctified in his purpose. And that's why when he was being crucified with his dying breath, he says, it is finished. The purpose for which God sent him into the world, he accomplished. And he says, I am sanctifying myself. You can almost hear him saying it as a prayer of resolve because he is on the the, the, the eve, the precipice of the, the doorstep of the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested, then taken, uh, tried, convicted, tortured, and crucified. This prayer is almost a resolve. I sanctify myself. Why? So that they too will be sanctified. He becomes our means for holiness and dedication to God. And he becomes our example in it. He has left you here to be united with other Christians, to be unlike the rest of the world because he's given you a purpose. God is at work in your life right now. Are you working with him or are you working against him? Pray with me.